This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 4 As you might be aware, unless you're new to our show, in which case welcome, and also in which case you might want to go back to a previous episode because this one is a non-representative example. As you might be aware, every so often we at the Word of the Week gather up all the little snippets and factoids that we turned up in our research and just couldn't manage to fit into their relevant episodes for one reason or another, put them together, and share them in what we've come to call our Lost Episodes. And this is our fourth ever Lost Episode. But this one... Well, this one's kind of different. It all started with a typo. While researching our episode about moraines, we misspelled the word and ended up with a bunch of search results that had nothing to do with glaciers. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, we thought that story would make an interesting lead-in to the episode about moraines, so we decided to go with the flow and start writing. Eventually, the introduction ballooned into 3,000 words about cognition, fantasy novels, microbiology, and communities coming together to do wonderful things. And also about the tragic loss of a great writer that affected us deeply and personally many years ago. Even as we wrote it, we knew we'd have to throw it out. It was too long. But we kept going anyway, because it covers some fascinating topics. In the end, we couldn't bear to throw it away. So instead, we're turning it into the first ever lost episode that was written before the episode it was lost from. A pre-lost episode. Here then is what might have been if we'd kept it in. Enjoy this lost introduction to Moraine. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Moraine. As you might expect, each episode of the Word of the Week involves a lot of research. As smart as we, the collective brains behind this nerdy endeavor, as smart as we might be, we don't know nearly as much as we'd like about every possible topic. And we never assume we know anything about things we know we know about. Partly because when you don't know something, you generally also don't know that you don't know it. And partly because there is a tendency for people who know a little bit about something to assume they know more than they do. Now, this fact has been identified by great thinkers and writers throughout history. Chinese philosopher Confucius once said, real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance. English playwright William Shakespeare said, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. And one of our favorite mathematicians, Bertrand Russell, once said, those who feel certain are stupid and those with any imagination and understanding are filled with doubt and indecision. But no one said it better than Plato in his dialogue Apology. Therein, the character of Socrates says the following, I am wiser than this man, for neither of us appears to know anything great and good, but he fancies he knows something, whereas I, I do not fancy I do. In this trifling particular, then, I appear to be wiser than he, because I do not fancy I know what I do not know. Now, this is all down to a rather famous cognitive bias that was first described academically in a paper by two social scientists, David Dunning and Justin Kruger. 
The paper, published in 1999, was entitled Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. In it, the two scientists described a series of experiments in which the participants are asked to rate their skills and abilities and then had those abilities measured. They discovered that not only do people tend to overestimate their own skills and abilities, the effect is drastically amplified in people who have some small amount of knowledge in a given area. Eventually, this cognitive bias became known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. However, Dunning and Kruger didn't start their landmark paper with experiments and data. They actually started it with the hilarious story of MacArthur Wheeler. On April 19, 1995, police showed up at the door of the middle-aged Pittsburgh man to arrest him for robbing two banks in broad daylight. Mr. Wheeler could not fathom how he had been identified so quickly. He was reportedly incredulous so incredulous that he didn't deny his crimes. Oh, Mr. Wheeler had robbed the banks. It's just that he thought he had been invisible. See, Mr. Wheeler knew something interesting about lemon juice. If you write a message on a piece of paper in lemon juice, because the juice dries clear, you can't see the message. However, if you expose the paper to heat or rub it with a wax crayon or salt it for a few minutes, you'll be able to read the message. That's because the acidity of the lemon juice damages the paper, and that damage becomes visible under certain circumstances. What does any of this have to do with robbing banks? Well, Mr. Wheeler knew that you could make invisible ink from lemon juice. So logically, if you rub that invisible lemon juice ink on your face, your face should also become invisible. The legendary thinker that he was, Mr. Wheeler covered his face in lemon juice, robbed two banks at gunpoint, and assumed no one would ever be able to identify the Invisible Man. During a psychological assessment, it was determined that Mr. Wheeler wasn't delusional. He was completely sane. He just truly thought that invisible ink ought to make something invisible. Never mind that it's only the ink that becomes invisible and not the paper itself but we digress. Now, it's important to note that cognitive biases are neither unsurprising nor entirely negative. A cognitive bias, by the way, is simply a pattern or thought or belief that isn't derived purely from logic or reason. And as psychologists Eamon Nathan Tversky and Daniel Kahneman described in 1972, they are actually remarkably important your brain has to deal with a lot of information. Your senses are constantly bombarded with real-time data about the entire world around you. Your memories are stuffed to exploding with experience and recollections to the tune of, according to some estimates, 10 to 100 trillion bytes of data. In order for you to make decisions in any reasonable span of time, your brain has to develop shortcuts and highlight only the most useful data instead of dwelling on information it doesn't have. Cognitive biases are vital to keeping your brain from getting bogged down or just frying its synapses. But again, we digress. What does any of this have to do with moraines? Well, when running Google searches for information about glacial moraines, 
we kept encountering results for someone named Moiraine Damadred. Or Moiraine Eyes Sedai. And that name brought back a lot of memories of our high school reading days. See, lots of folks know about the giant doorstopper fantasy series A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, which is more colloquially known as the Game of Thrones series. But before folks were desperately awaiting the next thousand-page entry in that fantasy series, we were desperately awaiting the next thousand-page entry in the Wheel of Time series. The Wheel of Time series was, as noted, a series of fantasy novels. They were written by American author James Oliver Rigney Jr. under one of his several pseudonyms, Robert Jordan. Incidentally, people think that the word pseudonym means pen name. It doesn't. It comes from the Greek and means false name. However, the French colloquialism for pseudonym is nom de plume. And that does mean pen name. Or rather, it means name of the pen. Technically, plume comes from the French word for feather, but plume became synonymous with pen because of feather pens or quill pins. Of course, the word quill also means feather. Oh, it should also be noted that the term nom de plume was specifically coined after an older phrase, nom de guerre, which means name of war. And that referred to a practice by the army of France during the late Middle Ages to assign recruits a nickname that appended to their names. The practice of the nom de guerre endured. Later, it became a matter of safety and security, allowing various operatives to conceal their true identities, as well as a way of building a separation between civilian and military life. The use of nicknames, call signs, and noms de guerre also helped build bonds of fraternity and sorority in military units. But we digress. The late James Oliver Rigney Jr., wrote under several pseudonyms during his life and wrote many different types of books. As Chang Lung, he wrote theatrical and dance criticism. As Reagan O'Neill, he wrote historical fiction. As Jackson O'Reilly, he wrote historical nonfiction. And as Robert Jordan, he wrote fantasy adventures, including the Wheel of Time series. The Wheel of Time series has been lauded for its richly detailed and extremely complex fantasy world. But given Jordan's passion for history and for alternate history fiction, this is no surprise. The world itself is locked in an unending cycle of historical ages that come and go. That's the so-called Wheel of Time. The transitions between the ages are generally marked by massive cataclysms. The books themselves feature an ensemble cast of characters across several nations and continents, but primarily concern the story of Rand Althor. Born a farmer, Rand Althor is actually a male wizard and also the reincarnation of a historical figure whose fight against the evil dark lord Shaitan destroyed the world and poisoned the source of magic, such that any male who wields magic is doomed to go insane. And Althor is mentored by the sorceress Moraine Aes Sedai. Now originally, the series was planned as a sexology, a collection of six books but the series proved remarkably popular. And Jordan, who had been passionate about writing since he first taught himself to read with the help of his older brother at the age of four, Jordan expanded his plans to include 12 books. Between 1990 and 2005, he published 11 of the 12 books, 
and enjoyed great critical and commercial acclaim. The series had sold more than 15 million books in the U.S. and 30 million across the globe. Four of the books achieved the top spot in the New York Times bestsellers list. And then, with one book left in the series and folks eagerly awaiting the final entry, disaster struck. In March of 2006, Jordan released a statement that he had been diagnosed with a rare condition called cardiac amyloidosis. He had been given less than four years to live. However, in a blog post on his own site, he pledged to finish the Wheel of Time series before his passing. He also stated that he was determined to outlive the doctor's predictions. Eighteen months later, in September of 2007, Robert Jordan passed away. Fans were devastated at the loss, and we were too, even though we had given up on the Wheel of Time series a few years prior. And many assumed the Wheel of Time series would never be finished. But then, Jordan's publisher, Tor Books, announced that there would be closure to the series. Mr. Jordan had been working feverishly on the twelfth and final book of the series, right up until his passing, and he had left detailed notes and drafts. And those would be passed along to fantasy author Brandon Sanderson, the author of the ongoing Mistborn fantasy series. In 2007, Tor promised the final book of the Wheel of Time series would be published in 2009. In 2009, the twelfth book did indeed arrive, along with the announcement that two more books would follow. Sanderson and Tor felt that Jordan's vision for the ending of his series was too grand to fit into one book. A thirteenth book followed a year later in 2010, and the series was finally brought to a conclusion with the fourteenth book, a Memory of Light in 2013. Fans and critics were pleased with the ending, and each of the three books in the finale also made the New York Times bestseller list. Jordan's widow, Harriet McDougall, remained closely involved with Tor Books and Brandon Sanderson to ensure the series was a fitting end for her husband's legacy. That said, the loss of Robert Jordan, who also wrote several Conan novels back in the early and mid-80s, was a tragic one, especially so soon after his confident insistence that he would outlive the doctor's four-year prognosis. But the odds were against him. Amyloidosis, which comes in several types, is incurable. Chemotherapy treatments do extend the life of the patient, but the median survival in the best case with ongoing treatment is around seven years, and can be as short as five months. Amyloidosis occurs when deposits of amyloids build up in various organs. In Jordan's case, they were building up in his heart. But amyloid deposits can form in the brain, leading to Alzheimer's disease or spongiform encephalopathy, which is also called mad cow disease. If amyloids build up in the pancreas, they can form a type of diabetes mellitus, also called type 2 diabetes. But what are amyloids, and how do they build up? Well, amyloids are the result of improperly folded proteins. And that brings us to one of the most fascinating aspects of human biology you can imagine. Proteins and protein folding. Proteins are vital for life. Everything you do, everything your body does, relies on proteins. Now, there are many, many, many different types of proteins. But they are all made up of the same basic building blocks. 
See, proteins are polymers. A polymer is a molecule that is basically just a long, long string of simpler molecules. Those simpler molecules are called amino acids. And though there are over 500 known amino acids, all life on Earth relies on just 20 of them. And if you've played Mass Effect 3 and heard Morden Solis's song, you can sing their names. Which we're not going to do. You can look it up. So, proteins are long strings of amino acids. And the instructions for building those proteins. That is what is actually in your genetic code. Your DNA. The blueprint for making you, your chromosomes, that reside in the heart of every cell in your body. They are just instructions for stringing together amino acids into proteins. How does that make you, you? Well, because proteins do everything. Proteins are tiny molecular machines. Each protein has a very distinct shape to it, and that shape allows it to do something. For example, hemoglobin, which is actually made up of four entangled proteins, hemoglobin is shaped in such a way that molecules of oxygen fit comfortably inside it. Four at a time. The hemoglobin can open itself to catch oxygen and can squeeze the oxygen back out. ATP synthase is an incredibly complicated collection of proteins that works like a combination of a rotary pump and a printing press. As it spins, powered by the flow of proteins inside your body cells, it stamps out endless supplies of adenosine triphosphate, which provides energy for all of the chemical processes in your body. Every chemical process in your body has one or more little molecular machines associated with it. And those are your proteins. Now, proteins are extremely complicated. They are formed when other proteins in your body, because you have proteins to build proteins, read your genetic code and then start stringing together amino acids according to the blueprint. And once the protein is assembled, something amazing happens. The long chain curls up, it folds up, it shapes itself into precisely the proper shape that it needs to do its job. And it does so based on all sorts of electrical and chemical forces between the various links in the chain. Some of those links, for example, like to be near each other, or near water, or far from water, or far from each other. And as each link settles into its proper place, the protein takes its shape. Of course, your body also has proteins that help assemble and fold some of the more complicated proteins. But what does any of this have to do with the various forms of amyloidosis? Obviously, the shape of a protein is extremely important. And if a protein doesn't fold up into its proper shape, it's useless. Now, your body has machinery to break down unneeded proteins. And improper protein folding happens all the time in your body. It's a very complicated system, and sometimes mistakes happen. Normally, they aren't a problem. But if there are a lot of improperly folded proteins, they can clump together into an extremely resistant plaque deposit. These deposits are called amyloids, and they can get in the way of your normal biological processes. In your brain, they can lodge between your neurons and basically block the signals from getting through. That's part of Alzheimer's disease. In your pancreas, the amyloids can interfere with the insulin-producing bodies known as the islets of Langerhans. 
which can be one cause of diabetes. And in your heart, they can damage the cardiac muscle tissue that keeps your blood pumping. Now, amyloidosis can be treated. For cardiac amyloidosis, the treatment generally involves chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, as it turns out, is a confusing word for many folks. Technically, it refers to using any chemical to treat an illness or condition. That's why it's called chemo, chemical, and therapy, treatment. But we usually see it in relation to cancer treatment. Chemotherapy for cancer treatment involves using one of several extremely powerful toxic chemicals to prevent cancer cells from reproducing. And because those chemicals are so powerful and so toxic, they generally also have a very strong effect on the body's healthy cells. That's why chemotherapy has such severe and unpleasant side effects. But chemotherapy can also be used to destroy the amyloids and to slow the formation of new amyloids. However, chemotherapy can only slow the progression of cardiac amyloidosis in most cases, and it can't reverse the damage already done. And that is why Robert Jordan was only given four years to live, assuming an aggressive chemotherapy regimen. And we were, as we mentioned, deeply saddened by his passing. But we are glad that his vision was finally able to be realized with the help of fellow authors, publishers, and his widow. There is another amazingly positive aspect to this story that also has to do with people coming together. It has to do with that bit about proteins curling up into incredibly complex shapes. Because of the incredible complexity of proteins and the protein folding process, that's what it's called when a protein strand assumes its proper shape. Because of the complexity of the protein folding process, molecular biologists have run into a huge problem. They just can't figure it out. See, we can easily figure out what a given protein is made of just by blasting it apart and counting the amino acids. We can even figure out the order of amino acids in a protein. But when we're faced with an unknown protein, it could be almost impossible to figure out how it's going to fold up. You're essentially trying to figure out the one right way to wad up an incredibly long piece of string. And if we can't figure out how it folds up, we can't figure out exactly how it does its job. This is important because in the case of viruses and other pathogens, if we can figure out how their proteins work, we can short-circuit or destroy them. And that brings us to Folded. Folded is an online puzzle game developed by the University of Washington's Department of Biochemistry. It was first released in 2008 and is still being updated today. It is free to play and available in nine languages at fold.it. Try it out. It's amazingly cool. It presents players with representations of proteins as weird snaky shapes in three-dimensional space and asks players to twist, turn, bend, and pull the thing according to some very simple rules into particular shapes. First, it presents players with tutorials so they can learn how to manipulate the shapes and the rules by which they function. Then, it presents the players with new puzzles based on proteins whose folding process isn't yet understood. 
as players-solve puzzles. Their solutions are transmitted back to the University of Washington, where microbiologists analyze them for new insights into protein folding processes. Among the many processes the biologists at UW are looking at right now in Folded is the formation of amyloids at the root of Alzheimer's disease. But we digress. After all, we meant to talk about glacial moraines and tarns, not moraine damadred of Kyrian. It's funny where a little typo can take you, eh? But let's get back on topic. Let's talk about the scars of history. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>